a doctor called Dr. Will Bowsbridge, an American doctor. He is the author of Fiber Field. And he talks about fiber is very important, but he also says diverse fiber is critical because there are so many different kinds of microbiome in the gut. And then each bacteria needs a different kind of fiber. So by providing more diverse fiber, you can kind of help uh, different kinds of bacteria in your gut. Yeah. And he says about, we need about 30 different kinds of fiber a week, which is a lot because if we think of fiber, we think of like, you know, vegetables, but you know, how many vegetables do you eat regularly? Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, 10. Yeah. But 30 is quite difficult to find only from vegetables, but there is a, this system in Japan called Magowa Yasashii. So Magowa Yasashii is basically you consume a lot of beans, a lot of nuts and seeds, a lot of seaweeds, fish, vegetables, mushrooms, and potatoes. Yeah. Uh, except fish, they all contain a lot of fiber. Yeah. And then you can easily find 30 different kinds of fiber if you use Magoya Sasi. This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai Podcast. Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. Hey, it's Nick Kemp here with the Ikigai Podcast. And on this episode, I welcome back author and sustainable life coach, Sachiaki Takamiya. Sachiaki is the author of The Ikigai Diet and more recently, Ikigai Biohacking, biohacking based on natural Japanese health. Sachiaki, you join me on episode three of this podcast to discuss what Ikigai means to Japanese people. And also, you gave a presentation at the Ikigai Summit, which I hosted in February, and you've hosted several webinars with my Ikigai Tribe community. So it's really great to have you back. Oh, thank you for having me back. Yeah, I'm very happy to be back. Me too. And I thought the Ikigai Summit was a great success and you participated also in the panel discussion and you actually also helped me doing some interpretation when we had Professor Aki Hirohasegawa. So thank you for everything that you've done for me. I really appreciate it. No, no, you're welcome. Not at all. I mean, I really enjoyed the summit. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear other speakers, you know, talk about Ikigai too. Yeah, it was a great success. So maybe we'll try and do that every year. So I'll definitely invite you back to be a part of that as well. Oh, that would be great. Awesome. So this will be a part one of a double episode we are going to do on Ikigai biohacking. And yeah, I'm really enjoying your book and learning a lot. So we, we should mention that you live in Shiga Prefecture, which is one of the longest lived prefectures in Japan. And you lead this traditional Japanese natural lifestyle that you wrote about in your previous book, but also in your new book. And your f- previous book, The Ikigai Diet, was more focused on eating for longevity and Ikigai and well-being. And now your most recent book, Ikigai biohacking focuses on obviously biohacking to live longer and optimally. And at the start of the book, you ask two important questions to the reader. 
Why do you want to live long? And what is the purpose of extending your life span? So I'd like to ask these questions of you, Sachiaki. So you are 60. You look much younger and I'm sure you feel much younger. So why do you want to live longer and what is the purpose for you extending your lifespan? Well, first of all, I, I'm not interested in extending my lifespan. I'm happy with the present lifespan we have as a humanity, which is somewhere between 100 than 120. Yeah. So the longest person who has lived, yeah, before was 121. I think a French woman. And now I think there's a Brazilian man or someone who's reached 121 or something. So we know that humans are capable of living up to 120 around that sort of age. So I'm happy to stay within this kind of a natural capacity we have. But I want to stay healthy. I want to stay sick free and be active and, you know, to be able to continue doing what I am doing now at the age of 100 and 110 and so on. Yeah. So I am not interested in extending my lifespan to 150 or 200 years old or so much. Yeah. Because the purpose of staying sick free until 120 is I want to complete my mission in life. Yeah. And I kind of started late. I've been a sort of a student for a long time in my life, in a way. I mean, not, not a literal sense of a student, but I have not accomplished what I wanted to do enough in the last 60 years. I think some people are lucky enough to be established early on. So they maybe fulfilled their mission by the time they are 40 or 50 and so on. But in my case, my life is kind of starting now. I'm kind of a, you know, having those two books out. And so I'm sure in the future, in the next few years, I'll be speaking worldwide, maybe, you know, giving talks or writing more books. And maybe I can spread the Ikigai diet and Ikigai biohacking. So this contribution kind of begin now. So having extra 60 years is very helpful for me. Yeah, so that's the main purpose. And I want to stay sick free and stay energetic to be able to continue my work. Yeah. And why 120? Well, maybe 100 is enough for me too. If I can live another 40 years, that's fine with me. But just because we're capable of living up to 120, like why not? It's just like a, something I want to challenge. All this resonates with me. Like you, I feel my life has only just begun in some ways. I think the work I do now is my personal mission, and I really only started a few years ago. So life started at 50 <laughs> for me. So I understand that perspective. And, yeah, to have this personal mission that's intrinsically motivating and meaningful and something you'd happily do for another 20, 30, 40 years, um, I can relate to and as you touched on this idea of living sick free to 90, 100, maybe even 110, I really think makes sense. And that's, that's the strong message in your book. And I think it highlights an important issue today that many people in their later years, they need medication, they have mobility issues and probably struggle to enjoy daily life. This was certainly uh, the case of my father, and I think the last five years he had quite a few health problems, needed medication, and had mobility issues uh, to the point where he 
actually fell over twice and broke both his hips. Oh, really? And that really impacted his later years. So this um, resonates a lot with me, and I've been focusing a lot on my mobility the last six months to a year. So, yeah, I can relate to what you're saying, and I think it makes sense. We, we should try and live sick-free and a little bit older, but we, we don't want to be trying to live to 150 and not have a high quality of lifestyle. So going deeper, in your book, you touch on three types of health that you relate to biohacking. So what are they? Yeah, so these are personal health and planetary health and spiritual health, right? So one difference between Ikigai biohacking and regular biohacking is that uh, we kind of include the spiritual aspect of our life. Yeah. So when you start thinking about spiritual aspect, the death is not the end of everything. Depending on you know your belief, you might believe in reincarnation, or you might have a Christian belief of you know going to heaven after dying and so on. But whatever the belief you have, if you believe in some form of life after death, and then your focus is not only just extending your lifespan and trying to live as long as you can and your focus is not only the physical body, yeah, the spiritual side as well. So from that point of view, maybe you don't have to live to 150 because you have a next life to, you know, to transform into. But while you are alive on this earth, you want to kind of accomplish your life mission. Therefore, the quality of life is more important than the length of life. Yeah. But then if we think about uh, personal physical health and spiritual health, maybe we are doing slightly different things. Like, for example, we talk about fasting or diet or exercises and so on, but things can be slightly different if you're aiming for spiritual health as well. Yeah. And the planetary health, because if the planet is in a healthy state, there's no point of doing all those things to improve your health condition because you cannot survive without the earth. So for me, personal health and planetary health should be tackled together. They are kind of a, you know, two, the same thing. And then again, if you are thinking about the planetary health, the type of activity you do changes a little. Yeah. There are many activities which can benefit just for your physical health, but may not be good for planetary health. But there are activities which can help both for the planetary health and the personal physical health. Yeah, I really like this approach and it's kind of highlight, it's not a self-centric or self selfish way of thinking about your own life, that you're including this spiritual aspect. And even if you're not religious, you just don't know. You don't know what happens after death, and I guess from living in Japan and observing how Japanese handle the death of relatives and their cultural practices, Japanese seem to accept death and don't seem to perhaps fear it. Whereas in the West, we have this probably mentality of, oh, yeah, I don't want to die and I want to get everything done before I die. And we have this different perspective. And then this idea of planetary health, I think is really important. And we obviously can relate that to, you know, our connection with nature and 
how we we treat nature and look for sustainable ways that you discuss for exercise, diet and lifestyle. And another thing that came to mind is I think when we talk about biohacking, you have this image of people doing all these tests and tracking their blood and buying the latest technology to make sure they're not aging or improving their overall health. And it can become quite expensive. And I think what you're offering is very affordable. So we we don't have to be spending thousands of dollars trying to biohack ourselves when we can do it almost at no cost, just with healthy diet choices, certain types of exercise, and considering both our spiritual and I guess the planetary life or the planetary world that we live in. So, yeah, it's a very holistic approach that goes beyond just your diet and exercise. And you describe it as a natural approach rather than, I guess, an artificial approach. And you touch on the shizenha. So what does that word mean, shizenha? Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, The Fine Jurikigai Course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Fine Jurikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Fine Jurikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. Yeah, Shizenha means naturalist. Shizen means nature. Ha is like a sort of a direction. So like Shizenha means like a naturalist. Yeah, people who value natural way of living. Uh, Shizenha people. Yeah. So Shizenha biohacking is kind of a natural, yeah, it, it is a naturalist biohacking. So we apply a mainly natural method, but don't focus on the artificial measures. And this would be specifically a Japanese approach to being a naturalist. I, I think there are naturalists in other countries too. Yeah. But Shizenha is a sort of Japanese word and there are naturalists in Japan too. And then, so I'm kind of modeling those Japanese naturalists for this biohacking. And because they are the successors of centenarians in Japan. So they, pretty much lead similar lifestyle to the Japanese centenarians. But centenarians lived a long time ago. So some of their lifestyles are a little, well, it's difficult for modern people to copy. While those Shizenha people are young and they live in the present era in this, you know, 2023. So it is easier to model their lifestyle than the lifestyles of centenarians. That makes sense. And so one of the things you mentioned earlier and a strong theme in your book is intermittent fasting. And a lot of people now practice this for the various health benefits. I do as well at the moment. So I I usually skip breakfast and don't eat until after midday. And you write that intermittent fasting is one of the most effective ways to activate autophagy, which is considered to stop or slow down the aging process. So what is autophagy, and why is it important? Right. So autophagy 
is a kind of a function, uh, like a cellular kind of function to regenerate or repair itself. Autophagy means self-eating. It basically eats the kind of decayed cell to renew. And then we all have this function when you are young, but uh, once we get old, this function deteriorates, and then we need to constantly activate this function to sustain this mechanism. Yeah. And then this was actually, the autophagy itself was not discovered, but the function of the autophagy was made famous by a Japanese scholar called Yoshinori Osumi, who won the Nobel Prize in 2016 in the field of physiology and medicine. And then it became very famous worldwide. And it is one of the key words in the field of longevity. Yeah, health and longevity. Yeah, autophagy. Once you can activate autophagy, you can slow down aging a lot. That's what it is said. I see. So it's, it almost sounds like this process of recycling damaged cells or optimizing damaged cells so they can be used to help other cells grow or activate. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm not surprised a Japanese researcher discovered that. <laughs> Japanese do love to research. And so the, the type of fasting you practice, you call hare and care intermittent fasting. Yeah. So would you like to explain what that is? Yeah. So hare and care intermittent fasting is the fasting that I practice. So I practice fasting only during the week, which is five days a week. But on the weekend, I take a break. I just eat three meals a day. So I don't do fasting. Yeah. So this comes from the concept from Hale. It's a Japanese concept. Hale means festivals or celebrations or kind of a not a usual time, like a special time. While K is a usual time. Yeah. And so in Japan, we distinction between K and Hale. And during the K period, we just lead a very simple lifestyle. We eat simple food and it's more like a sort of disciplined sort of period. While Hale, we just celebrate. We enjoy our life. So we have feast and we kind of use a different kind of plates and we maybe dress up, you know, nicely to celebrate the moment. So I put those two into a weekly schedule. So make during the week to be care, where we kind of discipline ourselves more by practicing intermittent fasting or maybe stay on a plant-based diet as much as possible. But on the weekend, making it hale period, the time of celebration, to include some animal-based food, if you like, or just eat three meals. So making this distinction kind of uh, create a balance in our life. And also it makes so much easier to practice intermittent fasting because a lot of people practice intermittent fasting every single day. If they do 16 hours fast, they maybe stop eating at 8 p.m. and then they won't eat until noon the next day. But if you do that every single day, that means after eight, you cannot eat anything, not even snacks, and you cannot drink anything either. I mean, not, not alcohol. Yeah. You can only drink water or black coffee or something, but not alcohol or even fruit juice. Yeah. Which is quite difficult. You have to do it every single day. But if you have the weekend to make an exception, then maybe you can drink wine late at night on the weekend. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, actually, I noted how you also discussed the, the social benefit of doing that. So on the weekends, I think sometimes you make pancakes for your son and have breakfast together. And that's obviously a special time. And you're right. probably talking to your son and engaging in, you know, important conversations or just fun conversations. So I like that idea. And I also like the, the terminology. I think in the West, when people talk about this, they call them cheat days almost hinting that it's something negative or something bad when you take a cheat day and you kind of overdo it and eat, almost eat anything and go crazy. But this is a, a more kind of civilized common sense approach. Like on the weekend, yeah, just enjoy yourself, have three meals a day, maybe have a drink here and there. And you can also enjoy that social aspect. So I might embrace this because I've it's a bit hard now with my family because my wife works weekends and my son is out and about or sometimes <laughs> he doesn't want to have breakfast, but oh, I, I can still go out with my friends or, or do other things. So this is a really positive approach. And w- would you like to also touch on the benefits of this type of fasting where well, you're fasting five days right. a week, but you're also allowing yourself to eat a little bit more and maybe maybe drink Two days a week. Yeah. So I already mentioned about autophagy, the cellular recycling function. It is very critical, but we also have something called mTOR, which is the opposite of autophagy. mTOR is kind of responsible for growth. Yeah. So not everybody should activate autophagy. For example, children need to activate mTOR or children or any people who are growing. That includes some young people, young athletes who need the kind of a growing power, then they need to activate mTOR too. Yeah. And usually for older people, like people who are over 50, yeah, need to start thinking about uh, longevity and autophagy helps tremendously for our longevity. Yeah. Therefore, a lot of people who are over 50 need to activate autophagy a lot. Yeah. But not constantly. So there are some period when autophagy need to be activated, but there are some periods that mTOR need to be activated too. The balance is important. And then the person called James Clement, with the author of the book called The Switch, he talks about this kind of a cycling of autophagy activating period and mTOR activating period. And he says about 66% of the time should be autophagy activating period and 34% is mTOR activating period. Yeah. And then there's another person called Dr. Mindy Peltz who has a YouTube channel specialized on fasting. She gives tons of videos on intermittent fasting and she says 80% should be on autophagy and 20% should be on mTOR. And then if you practice Hare and K intermittent fasting, the ratio is about 71% autophagy and 29% mTOR. So during the week, the K period is the autophagy activating period, but Hare period, the weekend, is mTOR activating period. Therefore, we have three meals, plus we include animal-based food, which has a higher protein, which can activate mTOR more. I like this approach. and. You also touch on that having a cycle of pain and recovery is, you know, the paramount key to longevity. 
this is kind of like a universal law. I think if we if we want to grow physically and, and build muscle, for example, we, we've got to put stress on our muscles and then allow them to recover and grow, and then we we grow muscle. Even you know, even mentally, if we go through challenges, we we learn things about ourselves and perhaps mature and and gain some sort of wisdom. And I guess if we fast, that's the type of pain we have to handle the cravings and ignore them and get over that discomfort. So <laughs> the old adage, you know, no pain, no gain is true. And yeah, you do mention that in your book. So would you like to add anything to that idea of, you know, why pain is helpful? Yeah, right. So there is a man called Yu Suzuki, the Japanese man, and he is the author of a book called Furo Choju Method, which means method for immortality and longevity. Yeah. It is a bestseller book in Japan. And he went over 3,000 research data on longevity. And then he just found the commonality of it, which is to have this cycle of pain and recovery. So I think intermittent fasting has a pain and recovery cycle because during your fasting window, it is a pain period, but during your eating window, it is a recovery period. Yeah. But with Hare and Ake intermittent fasting, we are making another cycle the week, during the week and the weekend. So the, during the week, the K period is more like a pain period, but the weekend, Hale period is the recovery period. Yeah. And then having this bigger recovery period makes a lot of difference. Because if you practice intermittent fasting every day, you have maybe eight hours eating window, which is fine. But as I told you before, after eight o'clock, you cannot drink anything and stuff like that. So you're still a kind of a disciplined. Yeah. Yes. But having the weekend, it's much longer time to just relax and let go. So when you come back on Monday, you feel much more energized to do your practice. It's almost, um, it touches on that aspect of Ikigai when you have something to look forward to. So if you have certain foods you plan to eat or you decide to go out with friends on, on the weekend, you know, you have that to look forward to, which kind of makes you feel good in the moment anyway. And yeah, we don't want to be eating meat or drinking in excess. And it's a very manageable, disciplined approach. And yeah, there are some people who kind of go to these extremes and somehow they can just follow a routine and be very strict about it. But one would think you're maybe missing out on certain benefits of letting yourself go and, and enjoying meal food you like and socializing over a meal. Yeah. And also for the animal-based food, by limiting the animal-based food only on the weekend, you can afford more expensive meats such as, you know, grass-fed beef or free-range chicken and so on. Well, if you eat, eat meat every day, then you kind of look for sort of cheap option and so on. Then those are like factory farmed you know, meat. So by this system, you can choose a healthier animal product because you're eating less. Well, on that theme of healthy foods, you've identified some autophagy activating foods you recommend consuming, and you write about this in your book. 
So would you like to offer some examples and the benefits of eating them? So usually autophagy is activated by intermittent fasting or exercises or, you know, deliberate heat exposure or cold exposure. But there are some foods which can activate autophagy too, which are foods like coffee, green tea, natto, miso, you know, broccoli, olive oil, ginger, and, and there are quite a few of them. Yeah. And then among those, I think coffee and green teas are the most critical because you can consume them during your fasting window. Yeah. So when you practice intermittent fasting, only beverages you can drink are non-caloric beverages. So water or black coffee or green tea without putting any sugar or milk or anything. Yeah. So when you intake coffee or green tea during your fast, then that can kind of prolong your autophagy activating period. But other food, basically you're eating. So when you eat, you break your fast. So it probably doesn't have as strong effect as, you know, coffee or green tea. But still, and the other foods are good. And then they have other nutritional benefits as well. I mean, all those foods such as natto, miso, broccoli, you know, ginger, have so many other health benefits. So they're good to eat anyway. Yes, I'm a big fan of miso. I, I generally drink that every day and yeah. I kind of follow your rustic miso approach and have a lot of vegetables uh, in my soup. So I was putting lentils and sweet potato and broccoli and, and cauliflower <laughs> in my soup last night, which wouldn't be a typical miso soup, would it? So you can play around with your foods and make them yeah, really interesting and tasty. So let's move on to the gut and more specifically the gut microbiome. And I have this memory when I went to Japan in the 90s and I was, I was living there. And one day at a supermarket, a Japanese friend asked me if I'd tried the probiotic bacteria drink, Yakult, and I said no. And then she started talking about healthy gut bacteria. <laughs> I was kind of confused and my first reaction was, oh, I don't want to drink it now because I just heard this bacteria. And I think it's it's only been in the last decade or so that the West has caught on. It often seems that way. We're slow to some of these health benefits or understanding health. And now there are many books on this aspect of health. But in Japan, the gut has always been regarded as a primal organ in Japanese natural health. So would you like to touch on that? Yeah. So... First of all, fermented food is very big in Japan. We have miso shoyu, which is soy sauce, natto, and, you know, tsukemono, which are like pickles. And there's so many fermented foods. And, and fermented food help your gut microbiome a lot. Therefore, we, our dietary culture is pretty much connected with the gut health. Yeah. And that has been around for many years. And then as far as gut itself is concerned, we don't only value gut, many other organs. In fact, in the oriental medicine, organs are very important. Gut is important, stomach and liver, lung, bladder, and all those organs are quite important. Each organ represents the season or your emotion and so on. 
But also, we have a word called hara in Japanese. Hara means your belly area. And hara is a prince,、uh, you know, the, the key for martial art or anything. When you practice karate, you feel the key energy from hara area. When you practice aikido, the same thing. So hara is very important in martial art. And hara is also important in healing arts, such as shiatsu, you know, acupressure. When you give shiatsu, you kind of use the key energy from hara to give, yeah, sh- sh- shiatsu. Right. So hara basically belly area, that's really close to the intestines. For some reason, we didn't have the kind of scientific knowledge of gut microbiome or anything like that. But somehow the, our ancestors valued hara meant they were aware of the, you know, gut microbiome. It's like a really good example of ancestral wisdom. They just discover it, I guess, for some process and then pass it on. And then decades later, <laughs> or maybe even several hundred years later, we understand why we've researched in science.、Um, so that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And sort of to go a little bit deeper, you noted a study by a Dr. Shoji Kondo,、mm-hmm. who was a medical professor at Tohoku University. And he spent 36 years traveling around Japan, visiting almost a thousand villages. And towns to investigate the diets of each community. So that's like a really long term, large scale study. Right. What were his findings? Yeah. So he discovered many long lived villages and short lived villages in Japan. Yeah. And then people in the long lived villages were eating main,、uh, a lot of them are eating beans, vegetables, and seaweed. They are all Fiber rich ingredients. And then people in the short lived villages were, were not eating those you know, fiber rich food, plus they were eating a lot of white rice. Yeah, yeah, white rice is <laughs> it's not very healthy, is it? It's just carbs, I guess. Right, yeah. Brown rice is much better in that sense because it contains fiber. Yeah. So fiber seems to be the key for health. And now fiber is considered. To be very helpful for gut microbial diversity. Yeah. In fact, fermented food and fiber are the two key ingredients which support your gut health. I see. So we're gaining a lot of very helpful knowledge. So, fiber and、uh, fermented foods. And I mean, yeah, and this is something. At least fermented foods Japanese eat daily. And unfortunately, most Japanese now eat white rice, highly processed white rice.、Right. So I guess for convenience, it's, it's quicker to cook and all that sort of thing. And also taste as well. I mean, a lot of people find white rice, yeah, more delicious than brown <laughs> rice. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you inspired me to try and cook brown rice for the family. And yeah, it didn't go well. My wife's like, you know, I. Oh, I don't want to eat brown rice, and my son said, I'm not eating that. So, <laughs> so it didn't go down well. But actually, now I'm eating a lot of、uh, sweet potatoes.、So、oh, yeah. Oh, good. And that's, that's really easy. I just get a sweet potato, put it in foil, and just put it on a low heat in the oven. And after about two hours, I have this delicious sweet potato to eat. So, so on the subject of food, you have and teach a methodology. To find 30 different kinds of 
fiber to benefit the gut and I guess the gut microbiome. And yeah, you actually use, I guess we could call it a mnemonic device. So would you like to talk about this? Yeah, right. So a doctor called Dr. Will Balsovich, an American doctor, he is the author of Fiber Field. And he talks about fiber is very important, but he also says diverse fiber is critical because there are so many different kinds of microbiome in the gut. And then each bacteria needs a different kind of fiber. So by providing more diverse fiber, you can kind of help uh, different kinds of bacteria in your gut. Yeah. And he says about, we need about 30 different kinds of fiber a week, which is a lot because if we think of fiber, we think of like, you know, vegetables, but you know, how many vegetables do you eat regularly? Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, 10. (laughs) Yeah. But 30 is quite difficult to find only from vegetables, but there is a, this, system in Japan called Mago wa Yasashii. Yeah. So ma means mame, which means beans. And go means sesame seed. Uh, go, go means goma, which means sesame seed. Uh, so seeds, nuts, yeah, uh, basically go. And then mago wa, wa is wakame, which means seaweed. Yeah. Uh, mago wa ya, ya means vegetables, yasai, vegetables. Yeah. And sa, sakana fish. And see shiitake, mushrooms, all kind of mushrooms, and eat potatoes, all kind of potatoes, including sweet potatoes, taros, and so on. So magua yasashi is basically you consume a lot of beans, a lot of nuts and seeds, a lot of seaweeds, fish, vegetables, mushrooms, and potatoes. Yeah. Uh, except fish, they all contain a lot of fiber. Yeah, and then you can easily find 30 different kinds of fiber if you use maguaya sasi, plus grains and fruit. If you add grains and fruit, then you can easily find 30 different kinds of fiber. It's interesting how this is actually just a phrase in Japanese, meaning grandchildren are kind. Right. So I guess it serves as a way to remember to eat all these different types of food. And obviously very, you know, it's almost a a vegetarian diet with um, a little bit of fish. Right. Or almost a vegan diet because there's no dairy in this uh, model, is there? No, no dairy. But fish, the only thing which isn't vegan is fish. Awesome. So we've covered a diet and now we can move on to exercise. And you write about exercise in the book. So... Yeah, do you want to touch on what Ikigai biohacking exercise is and what you do and why you engage these certain exercises or activities? So I told you that there are different approaches if you are tackling your spiritual health and planetary health as well, not only your physical health. If you're just thinking about your physical health, which most people do, and uh, then you can think about, you know, jogging is good or yoga is good or, you know, a hit, which is a high intensity interval training is good. In fact, a high intensity interval training is considered to be one of the best type of exercises for longevity. Yeah. Dr. David Sinclair, you know, the Harvard researcher 
talks about it too. He actually does recommend high-intensity interval training to activate what he called a sartorin, which is a longevity gene. So in the Ikigai biohacking, we do think about those research too. So to do uh, like a low-intensity aerobic exercise and High-intensity aerobic exercise are both critical to activate autophagy and sartoin. And we also need to do some muscle training. Uh, as you said, you know, many old people damage their hip or they by, by falling and so on. So to prevent from falling or any kind of accident, you need muscle strength. Mm-hmm. But that also means you need the flexibility of your body and the mobility. So you need to have the flexibility of not only your muscle, but your joint. And yeah, you need to have a balanced body and so on. And then I think about spiritual health and planetary health. Are there certain exercises that can also benefit the planet? So I recommend Exercise is outdoor, doing something in nature, which will connect you with a natural rhythm and natural kingdom, which will help you become aware of the environment and the planet Earth and everything. So, for example, hiking, you know, mountain hiking is very good because you spend a lot of time in the mountain, in the forest. And we have a word called shinrin-yoku in Japanese, which means forest bathing. And so if you go to the mountains and you are surrounded by all the trees and you have a connection with the natural kingdom. And hiking is a great aerobic exercise too. So instead of maybe doing a treadmill or aerobike in the gym, maybe you can go outdoor and do your jogging or walking, Nordic walking or hiking. Yeah. And I also recommend Nordic walking, and I do Nordic walking because it helps our posture to be straight. By using those two poles, it kind of helps your spine straight, so you can walk with a correct posture. While regular walking, sometimes if you don't pay attention to your posture, you kind of walk with a kind of a wrong posture. Yeah, and then posture is very critical to prevent from injuries. The reason why you fall or you lose balance is, first of all, you don't have the right posture. So the posture correction and then loosening your muscles and loosening your joints and all those activities are important. It is important. And I've mentioned I'm really focusing on mobility. And I mean, just the idea that imagine if you fall over and that you couldn't get yourself up pretty scary that's that's what happened to my father um he fell over while his wife was out and he was on the floor for like 40 minutes and couldn't get up and he'd been quite fit actually until his mid-60s and then he stopped exercising and didn't eat I think he ate what he thought was a reasonably healthy western diet but it probably wasn't that that healthy it certainly didn't have a lot of fermented foods and whatnot and yeah, I remember getting a call, finding out he'd broken his hip and he couldn't get himself up. And he was actually fell on carpet. So it wasn't like he fell on concrete or something. So, and then I, I think about my father-in-law and 
he can sit cross-legged and make pottery for hours on end and oh, yeah. he sits on tatami and can easily get up. So, yeah, mobility and having these loose limbs and I think walking a lot and, and being out in, in nature is a great alternative to this idea that you have to go to the gym and crush it and, you know, how much can you bench press or how much can you deadlift being these markers of, um, you know, strength or health. So I've really embraced this idea of mobility over strength now and I do exercises to focus on that. And I do like walking as well. Yeah. So when you do the weightlifting type of exercise, I mean, they're okay too, but sometimes you kind of tense up your muscles too much mm. because you need a flexibility of muscles too. So I kind of recommend body weight training. So I do a hit, a high intensity interval training, but I usually do body weight hit because as long as you are using only your body weight, mm. you do not develop your muscle too much. Everything is proportionally. Yeah, but you might develop your muscle disproportionately to joints and other parts of your body if you use a very heavy weight. Yeah. Yes. So I kind of focusing on just enough strength, but not too much, but more work on loosening and stretching and yeah, posture correction and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I do too. A lot of body weight exercises. I use something called the Tabata protocol, and you actually outline it in your book, and it's this 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, eight times, so less than five minutes, and you, I mean, you stretch and loosen up, and then you do something, maybe you do as many squats as possible, so air squats in 20 seconds, stop, wait 10 seconds, and then start again, and that is intense, you know, to do the last set, that's yeah. You do right, breathing yeah. hard, and I think if you do about three or four sets, yeah, that's that's a lot of exercise in under twenty minutes. Yeah, Tabata method is actually from Shiga Prefecture, I think. Well, mm. it was a uh, made by Professor Tabata, who is a researcher at Ritsumeikan University. They have a department called sports science, health and sports science, but the department is in Kusatsu in Shiga. So I don't know whether this professor is in Shiga, but if the department it came from this department, then it is in Kusatsu. So that means it came from Shiga. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and it's interesting because the, the claim is if you do this exercise, it's sort of the equivalent of doing moderate aerobic exercise over 40 minutes or something. So it's a great way to... You know, do exercise if you're short on time. So I, I almost do that every day. So it's it's really yeah. a great, oh, great. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> so on the theme of exercise, if we want to take it to maybe an extra level or an interesting level, you mention, I guess, a type of way. So do, the way, and I wasn't familiar with this word. So shugendo. So what is shugendo? Yeah, Shugendo is a Japanese spiritual practice. So in Japan, we have a two big kind of spiritual well, religions, if you like. One is Shintoism, and then one is Buddhism. Yeah, Buddhism and Shintoism are the two main spiritual practices in Japan. Shugendo is a kind of a, a spirituality that connects Shintoism and Buddhism. 
So the Shugendo practitioners lived in the mountains and they didn't really come to the village. They stayed in the mountains, but they for somehow were practicing both Shintoism and Buddhism. So they have a lot of mixture of the both. And there are people called Yamabushi who are the Shugendo practitioners and they are the forerunners of ninja. In fact, ninja were Yamabushi. I see. Ninja was kind of developed out of Yamabushi. And then, so they all practiced in the mountains. Yeah, this may be curious, Sachiaki. So I actually Googled Yamabushi and I saw these videos. And so they still exist in some form today. Yamabushi still do exist. Yeah. Ninja don't exist anymore, but Yamabushi, <laughs> Yamabushis do. Yeah. And people kind of do these Yamabushi retreats, I guess, in a way, and they, they take a week off. They basically climb a mountain and, and they don't brush their teeth and they, they sort of abstain from doing certain things. And it's something they're actually, there's some organization or some company um, trying to promote it to attract foreigners as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so even, I think there's a, a guy from New Zealand who's, sort of become a, a Yamabushi and he, he has his own YouTube channel on it. So I guess this could inspire us to maybe create an outdoor exercise routine where we, we go outside and you know, if we're lucky enough to be near a mountain, maybe we climb it or, or go to a park and we, you know, we don't have to drive to a, a gym and pay hundreds of dollars every month. Um, we can do these exercises outside and, and connect to nature. So it's all very fascinating and we'll continue this discussion on biohacking in the next episode and we'll discuss mental exercises, digital fasting and biohacking with nature and bioharmonizing with your soul. So we've got that to look forward to in the next episode. So thank you for sharing all this wisdom and insight. And I highly recommend people buy your book. And so the title of the book is Ikigai Biohacking, Biohacking Based on Japanese Natural Health. Yeah, thank you for having me uh, in this podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, and I actually was thinking, oh, I can't wait to go to Japan, hopefully this year or next year, and we'll obviously meet and probably meet on the weekend and we can enjoy... uh, Three meals and a bit of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, we can, you know, go mountain hiking and, yeah. Awesome. All those things. Yeah. Because in the Kinki region, there are a lot of uh, mountains where Shugendo flourished in the past. Huh. I mean, so now there's a few Yamabushi left, but it's not uh, as big as in the past. So all those mountains, are, you know, no, nobody's there now. But like 100 or 200 years ago, then all those Shugendo practitioners were living on those mountains. And there are many those mountains in Kinki region. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to. So <laughs> thank you again, Sachiaki, and I'll be speaking to you soon for the second part of this episode. Right. Yeah. See you next week. Okay. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.